There are a few things just to point out um, from this Bible passage that Vera read just a few moments ago. Um, it's interesting, the setting is actually, if you go to modern day Israel, Palestine today, Jaffa is called Jaffa, and it's at the southern end of the Israeli city of Tel Aviv. And it's an artist quarter, an artist colony, and it was formerly, um, Tel Aviv was only founded in the earlier part of the last century. It's about 100, 110 years old. But Jaffa was the town that had been there on the port all these centuries, and the town that's mentioned in the biblical narrative. Um, Jaffa and then Lydda is actually on the site where Ben Gurion Airport is now, if you've ever flown into that country. And these are both cities that um, were emptied or, or people fled from both cities in the Israeli War of Independence in 1948, or as Palestinians call it, the catastrophe. So they're older, um, more, um, people like to go have dinner in Jaffa because it has more character than a modern city, say something like that. But that's the setting for these places. And then also, there's this, in the final line, meanwhile he stayed in Jaffa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. That's actually kind of a big deal because tanners would have been people that were unclean in that culture and time and not someone that would have been, a disciple would have been allowed or expected to spend time with. And it's sort of following the example of when Jesus had been with them, continually breaking the rules and expanding the boundaries. And that's what's happening here. By staying in someone's home that you weren't even supposed to shake hands with because of their occupation, they were unclean. So just to start with those two observations. The other thing that is interesting is that this um, immediately follows upon the story of Saul uh, turning into Paul, the namesake of our church, St. Paul. And Saul had been this person that was persecuting and killing early Christians. And he would have been someone that would have not been welcome or uh, he was someone you were afraid of. Suddenly, he turns the tables, he becomes this really wonderful person, a champion for their cause. And I mentioned this last week, and I think about it again today is, when you think of maybe the person or the religious figure or the political figure in our life, our community life now, that's the most, what, who, who are we most afraid of? Or who are we most angry with? And what if that person changed and became goody two-shoes? Would we be able to accept that? And would we be able to forgive that person? I don't know what the answer is, but that's what happened with Saul and Paul. And then the last thing is that I realized that um, I'm much more uh, open to the word Tabitha than Dorcas. Dorcas sort of sounds like dorky or you know, awful things. But the actual Greek word, it's translated as gazelle. So think of Dorcas as gazelle. And that's a much more beautiful, much more graceful word than the one we're given. The other thing in this passage that is something that's apparent is with Tabitha or Dorcas or Gazelle, um, that she's a, group of, she's a part of a group of women that are really holding things together. They're the glue that hold the institution together. And I think that if most local churches today were honest, what gender usually is the glue that holds the church together. And I would say it's not men very often that do that, but it's the women that do. That's what's happening right here with her. And the other thing in here is that 
She's actually named. She's given a name. And in a lot of the biblical narratives, the women they don't even bother naming the women. And I think that sort of prejudice is here in the first paragraph when they say that she is devoted to good works and acts of charity. The men do ministry, but the women do good works and acts of charity. And I think that there's a little bit of um, hierarchy in there that hopefully we can erase over time. And when I think of this, and I think of these group of women, and they're just so upset about this person dying, and a part of their group that's done work together for some time, and held things together been the glue, I go back to the memorial service, or the funeral, for my grandmother uh, when I was in my 30s. Um, my grandfather died when I was in junior high, and I don't really remember that memorial service very much. Um, but my grandmother died when I was, when I was in my 30s, and then her son, my mother's brother, died in that same small town, in that same church, same funeral home, about four years ago. And when my grandmother died, I didn't realize this at the time, but in rural Midwest, and this was southwestern Iowa, the tradition in the local churches is that funerals, because it's an open casket and that whole tradition is still very much going on there, that funerals are on Tuesdays or Thursdays at 11 and they're followed by a sit-down ham dinner. So, and to be honest, we could have afforded a pig, but I just didn't know how to talk about what do you do with a pig to, anyway, so enough of that. Help me figure that one out for another year. So for my grandmother's memorial service, it was, it was the tribute to her was all the other women that had been a part of that. My grandmother had made the mashed potatoes and gravy for decades for every funeral that had ever happened in that church. So the tribute to her was at the, at the uh, buffet table for the lunch, there were nine kinds of jello. And believe me, that is the highest compliment you can get in rural Iowa. So when my uncle died, for example, there were only four kinds of jello. So that's a more normal number. So that's the setting. These women are incredibly sad, and this person has died who was an early minister in the church, even though she's only credited with, with doing charity and good works. But then this, the thing that's troubling for us in our modern um, empirical world is that Peter comes, he responds to the request, and he raises it from the dead. So in our setting, that's a challenging piece, but it's also important to note that in that time and in that era and in that place, miracles were expected to happen other people had been raised from the dead, when we think about Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or other people in the biblical narrative, and that um, other miracles happened in terms of healing and driving demons out of people, that type of thing. So the audience that this was directed to was expecting these kinds of things to happen from time to time, whereas we in our modern culture and our modern scientific society, we ask questions like, well, how come she was healed and she wasn't for that type of thing? And those are the kinds of questions that we uh, come up with and ask, and legitimate questions from our world and the way that we look at the world. And the danger is that if someone isn't healed or if someone does die, then somehow it becomes their fault that they didn't, you know, they weren't in the right place at the right time or, you know, they didn't, they didn't follow the, um, the right pathways to do that. And when I say that, I think, really, does that happen? And then I remember an experience in my life many, many years ago where it was very clear that the person thought that. 
Um, this was years ago in Massachusetts. I was maybe 32, and our daughter Lauren had just developed an incredibly severe seizure disorder. And it wasn't clear at that time if she would survive it or not. Um, and she had been in the hospital for a month, and life really for Teresa and I was really just on hold, you know, trying to figure out what was happening and what, what to do next. And in the times that I was in the office at work, there was a woman in the congregation that made an appointment to talk with me. And so we met, and she came in and closed the door. We had pleasantries for a moment or two, and I said, so tell me what's on your mind. And she said, well, it's Lauren. And what I need to tell you is that if you and your wife were only praying harder, this wouldn't be happening to her. And I sat there for a moment, and thought, now did I really hear that? Don't, don't jump here. I did, and she had that expectation look of sort of, okay, I've said what I needed to say, and what's he gonna respond? And I sat there, and I stood up, and I opened the door, and I said, the next time that you and I ever talk about Lauren will be at my invitation. And it's one of those few times in life that your words and your actions actually come together. So I was kind of like proud of this moment, even though it was devastating. Um, but that's the kind of thing that we are in danger of running into when life feels like it's a cookbook to follow and someone has cancer or, or some other issue and they do die then it's not their fault that they die and some people don't succumb to that. That's part of the mystery of living and part of why we come together as a church because we don't know the answers and we need a place to be when we just need a place to be. And we can't go through the motions, but the institution will go through those motions for us until we're ready to pick up the mantles of life again. So the other thing that's interesting about this passage for me is Peter. Because Peter's the one that does this healing. He's the one that um, raises her uh, from the dead. And Peter, this is sort of a new step for him. If you remember, this is the disciple that Jesus is walking on water, another miracle. He jumps out of the boat, takes a couple steps, and sinks because he doesn't have the faith to do that, and Jesus pulls him into the boat. This is the one that when Jesus at the Last Supper uh, washes the feet of the disciples and Peter's the one that says, oh, well, my face and my head too. I mean, he just can't let it be. He has to say something more. Or in the transfiguration story when they're on the top of Mount Tabor, Peter, oh, let's build shrines. Let's, let's keep this mountaintop experience going. And so here, Peter very quietly just says, get up and walk and heals her. And she comes back to life. And so I think that the message in this for those early listeners and for us today is that this disciple that, you know, is his worst moment before the rooster crowed, denying Jesus three times, here he follows him, he says um, the, the Christian story, and he actually heals someone from the dead. So here's someone that for whatever remarkable resurrection story happened, however we interpret that, this individual was changed incredibly because of that piece, and that this is who he is now. So on this day, I want to come back to Mother's Day and the flowers and the brunch and all the kinds of wonderful things that we have happen today. And I remember at Plymouth Church many years ago, um, I'm of the generation, and I think my, my boss, Tony Robinson, at the senior minister of Plymouth at that time, was from the generation where we were lectured in seminary you don't do Mother's Day, you don't do Father's Day, those aren't Christian holidays. And, and so Tony was in that school, 
And Mother's Day wasn't mentioned at all that particular year at Plymouth. Not in the prayers, not whatever. And then two or three women came up to him during the final hymn. So this isn't an invitation. But they came up to him in the final hymn, and I could see them shaking their fingers, and I could kind of read the lips. And You just didn't do that to Tony Robinson. And I was kind of enjoying the moment because <laughs> I'd had that from other people in the church from time to time. But he was getting lectured that, you know, there are people here specifically because this is Mother's Day and you need to acknowledge it in some way. So in that spirit, I want to share a poem that I've shared before and we'll also have um, a wonderful anthem today in this, same, in this same subject. This initially came to us from Marcy Scott Weiss and I've adapted it over the years as um, we thought over the years of more categories to include. So in closing, let me read this. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who have ever lost a child or experienced a stillbirth, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have needed or chosen to be single parent mothers, we appreciate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who have lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way that you had longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those families with two mothers or two fathers, we appreciate you. To those who have placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold those children in your heart. To those who have adopted children, we are grateful for you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We honor you. Thanks be to God. Amen.